The Zooier Than Thou podcast contains adult concepts and language and is intended for an adult audience. So if your childhood video game console was a PlayStation 3, this one ain't for you. Hail and welcome. Put on your Sunday best, because it's time for Zooier Than Thou. Hey, can I say, you got me howling at the moon. Don't you know, love is wild when you are zoo With zooier than thou Oh yeah Greetings fellow zoos, and welcome to another transcendent episode of Zooier Than Thou I'm the dungeon master recovering from getting pounded in my crypts by two werewolves, Kynophile and I'm the only cat who knows where it's at. Love cat. Uh, where what's at? It's it's a figure of speech, dude. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. We'll be your hosts for this episode of Zooier Than Thou. You don't know where it's at, do you? I don't even know what it is, but anyway. Well, as long as we're puzzled, where's Toggle at? Well, ignoring the bad grammar, uh, he's out celebrating. His balls just dropped. It's a banner day. Uh, literally, oh. check out the new artwork. <laughs> yep. If only I could feel how heavy they were. What was that? Uh, Nothing. Moving on. Dude, we'll talk later. Uh, No time to process that or admit my feelings. Well, as zoos living in this crazy mixed up world, there are often a lot of feelings that need processing. And that's something we'll be talking about in the near future on this podcast, I expect. So stay tuned for that. Mm Mm-hmm. This podcast has covered a lot of ground in its two full years, hasn't it? Indeed, it's been one hell of a year already. We've seen the vaccine that hopefully spells the beginning of the end for the pandemic that's cost us so dearly this past year. Mm -hmm. We've seen the confirmation of the first Native American member of a presidential cabinet. Congratulations to you, Deb Howland. Wonderful. The Pope and a Grand Ayatollah have met for the first time ever in thousands of years. And we're starting off the third season of the world's first podcast by, for, and about the zoo community. And we have a lot to talk about this time, but for another first, let's dig into that mailbag. Sure. This first one comes from, uh, Jesus is long, (laughs) nameless, faceless human animal that you've conversed with before, but it's been quite a while. I'm never going to remember that. Can we just call them nameless? Good with me. Nameless writes, Well, I've worked off and on with a project, not a podcast, but zoo-related probably since like around 09. It's actually been so long now the technology that it used is now part of the ash heap of history. This latest episode made by you all has galvanized me to either try and complete it by 2022 or short of that, forever delete the cursed thing so that I will not be pestered by the thought of it any longer. So thanks for that. Stay or become well. Well, glad to hear that you've been creatively inspired, even Mm -hmm. if it is inspiring you to resurrect a past project. I know I have some abandoned things I should get done. I mean, I've I've, I've had projects that have stalled out for years only to finally be completed. So it's nice. don't, Don't give up on them. No, not at all. Like, as long as you still have the materials available, you can always go back and finish them later. But anyway, this next one is a bit longer. It's from Zipwalk. Zipwalk writes, Hi, Zoot. First of all, thank you for your wonderful podcast. It has helped me a lot in many ways. I wanted to say that I'm a big fan of the music featured in the podcast. It's clear that you're having a lot of fun with it, and it shows in the songs. The raps are really fun, and I'm truly in love with Kind of Files' 14 Werewolves song. It's been a while since it came out, but I literally can't get it out of my mind. The same goes for You're the Stud. It's so much fun. Oh my god. 
I, I like making music as a hobby, and I made this little song inspired by that sweet, cheesy, and uplifting background music that plays in every episode. I really love that tune. Combined with the silly jokes, every time I listen to the beginning or ending of any episode, I feel alive. It makes me feel at home. Anyway, I'm still a complete noob, but please let me know what you think of it. On another note, the song is still hidden and no one but me has listened to it. Like it happens with most of the stuff I make, I want to post it out there for everyone to see, but I'm always hesitant and doubts end up taking over. I want to learn to not give a rat about what people think of me. You guys are great at it, do you have any tips about this? Anyway, I can't wait for next season of Zooier Than Thou. Keep doing what you do and thank you all again. Zipwalk. Gee, we have well, fan music? Yeah, thank you, Zipwalk. And I actually have heard that uh, song of his. Oh, good. And uh, I do hope that his courage rises to the quality of his work, because the quality of his work is, well, let me say, it was very charming, and mm-hmm. it's a song that deserves to be heard by people, especially Zooiers. Definitely. And mm-hmm. as far as confidence in one's work goes, mm-hmm. I mean... Honestly, the only thing that I've ever found that helps with that is just doing it over and over again. Like, Mm -hmm. if your writing is bad, the way you get better at it is more writing. Just any artistic form or anything that you can do, the less you worry about what other people think of it and the more you just do it and then gradually get better at it, the better off you'll be. I mean, the alternatives is to just have these wonderful ideas and then never express them anywhere and then regret it. And there's not much point in that. Life's too short. And I would add to that, not caring how it's going to be received is definitely a huge part of getting your work out there Mm -hmm. and overcoming the obstacle of getting in your own way because you think it's not going to be received well. And it can be hard to do. You might just need to make a deal with yourself that you're going to put it out there and simply not care or not give any heed to how it's taken, good or bad, because art that really speaks to other people is always going to be art that spoke to the artist. It's not something that you can manufacture by looking at people's tastes and then catering to them, because that is always going to feel false. It's going to feel as if you did that, and... Mm. Then it's just like 10,000 other things that did that. Um, I'll tell you, for myself, what I had to do when I started making art was to just start making it and make a deal with myself not to give a fuck how good or bad, in quotations, it was, whether it made sense or didn't. I simply started making it and made it for my own pleasure and usually didn't have much of an idea or, or any idea beforehand what I was going to be doing. My native art form is uh, drawing, uh, pencil drawing, mm-hmm. and so I would just to make a deal with myself that I'm going to cover this piece of paper with drawings and I'm just not going to stop until it's done and I'm not going to critique it as I make it and worry about what it is or or how it is. And that was crucial to getting over those kinds of hurdles of self-doubt. And when it comes to letting other people see it or actually submitting it for public viewing, you have to have that same kind of attitude toward it in which you made this because it was something that you felt sincerely as you were making it. And you're putting it out there because it's just something that you've created and you're not worrying about who your audience is or what it is they want to see because the art that people really want to see that's going to speak to them is always going to be something that was sincere in its creation. You can't formulize that. No, of course. I would just add as well that no matter what you're creating, you are going to be your own biggest critic. Just 
in general, because to make something, whether it's a song or a drawing or a meal or something, you're going to know every single little thing that went into it. You're going to know all the bits that went slightly wrong. And as such, those are the things that a lot of people's brains, mine included, are going to stick to when they think of that. Most people aren't going to react that way. They're not going to nitpick in that sense. They're going to take the thing as a whole, and if they find something they like in it, that's the part that's going to stick to them. Just to give a really brief example, Edgar Allan Poe wrote The Raven, one of the most brilliant poems ever, and he also wrote about a hundred other articles that nobody reads anymore because it's 18th century comedy. The fact that he wrote those hundred things helped him to write The Raven, and also it made him better to do it whether or not it itself was good. So, so, yeah. so Zipbok, I say just put it out there and, uh, and then start making your next thing. Okay, moving on to our next email from Akamori. This one on reaching out. Akamori writes, Hey, I recently found your podcast and it has helped me feel a bit more comfortable with my newfound zoo sexuality. Your podcasts give me the feeling that I am not alone out there. I also need a bit of help. Where can I find other zoos out there who will help me out with figuring things out for myself? I do know of zooville.org, but I feel it is not anonymous enough. I am one who is always careful and never tries to do anything that can expose me, especially with zoophilia being the subject matter. In short, love the podcast, and where is the safest place to find other zoophiles? Have a good day, Akamori. One place that we tend to recommend here for finding other zoos is zoocommunity.org, which mm-hmm has a pretty good vetting procedure when it comes to new membership. You effectively have to write in why you're joining, what being a zoo means to you, that sort of thing, and then the admin staff can take a look at that and basically figure out, for the most part, if you're genuine or not. Also, the person who runs it is a pretty good computer expert, and there's a really good thread on there on how to maintain your privacy, how to keep yourself safe online through various methods, especially as a zoo, because that's really important to make sure that things don't get found by the wrong people. So that's a good place. As for the rest, it really is kind of scattershot. I mean, places like Zooville, admittedly, I'm going to say one zoo for every 20 people who are curious, to Mm -hmm. put it kindly. And so there are a bunch of other places, different kinds of social media, particularly Twitter, can be somewhat active in that space. But yeah, as far as finding others, really it's just a matter of persistence more than anything. Persistence and getting good hints from other people on where to go. You have anything to add on that? Uh, Be authentic. You'll be able to get in touch with other real people that way and you'll recognize Mm -hmm. them. So a lot of it just stems from being true to yourself and learning to tell real people from fake ones and to pick up on the subtle clues that people give and that often aren't even that subtle when they have Mm -hmm. ulterior motives or they're just being disingenuous in, in some concerning way. But I don't know how to adapt that specifically to zoo matters. It's just kind of a basic life skill that you have to learn. Yeah, of course. So this one comes to us from Flipside. Flipside writes, I did it. I listened to every single episode in record time. I thoroughly enjoyed each episode and rode the emotional roller coaster with you all. I want to say thanks for all the laughs and amazing topics. It's been a lovely way to connect with other local zoos and have something to do during these COVID times. I'm excited to see what comes next. Happy Zoo Year 2021. Flipside. Happy Zoo Year to you, too. I'm glad this podcast has been keeping you connected in a time of so much isolation and struggle. Oh, absolutely. Very short and sweet. Thank you so much. Uh, Last email today is from No Name on it. Let's call them... Well, we already had Nameless, so this will be even Namelesser. Even Namelesser (laughs) says, 
Hello, I have wanted to write this for a very long time now, but have been too nervous to reach out. I've always been scared to reach out to others, mostly because I know if it gets out publicly, it can sometimes ruin people's reputations. I have felt how I do about animals for as long as I can remember. I just want to say your podcast means the world to me. Before your podcast, I had never really seen anyone who was open about being a zoo like you guys are. I used to be on Beast Forum, but it was very alienating to me because people really didn't feel the same way I did. It was almost entirely sexual for all the zoos I've met. For me, it's mostly romantic. I have always connected with animals my whole life in this way. I do feel sexual attraction to them, but it's more like a part of my feelings rather than the whole of it, as other zoos I've met have expressed. For a very long time, I felt very bad about myself. I hated myself for my feelings, and I repressed my emotional and romantic connections I had with animals and even with humans. I gaslit myself for years until recently. Your podcast has made me realize that what I feel is okay. It makes me feel seen and heard. And honestly, I'm crying while writing this because I just really appreciate it so much. You are helping out a lot of people with this too. People who are probably just too scared to talk about it like I was. Something I have struggled with and still struggle with is religion. I wanted to ask if you or others have similar experiences. I accepted this as part of my feelings in life, but I feel a constant guilt and fear about its being a sin. It's been very hard for me, and I actually prayed over whether it was wrong or a sin. I'm not sure if you are religious or not, but would greatly appreciate your input about it either way. That is uh, quite timely, actually. This email came in just as we were about to record this episode, which mm -hmm. is about uh, zoophilia and religion. So yep. timely as heck. Yeah, absolutely. To answer your question a little more directly, I'm not religious, but I was growing up raised in a Protestant household, was very inspired by the the tales of Jesus and how he sheltered outcasts and preached this radical form of kindness and giving and all that stuff. And I think there's a lot to be said in that part of it, basically, no matter what your spiritual beliefs are. But, you know, you don't have to take my word for it, of course. We have a bunch of different zoos of different faiths that we've gathered to talk about how they view these things. And also a lot of different history related to how zoos and animals and sexual acts with them were viewed by them. It wasn't all Thomas Granger fire and brimstone stuff. There's a lot of different beliefs about that. Uh, and I personally, to answer your question, I'm not religious in, in any traditional way. My parents were nominally Catholic and atheist-leaning agnostic, and my personal experiences don't fit in with any religion that I know of. But at the same time, I'm also not a, a hardline atheist or, or anti-spiritualist. I have experiences that, to me, are classifiable as spiritual or even religious, but they're strictly my personal experiences, and they inform my worldview and my conception of reality, but I, I don't see them as being transferable to anyone else. They're relevant to me, and I know that, that other people have comparable experiences. They probably are of a type that humans simply have. So I would say that they're meaningful to me and I don't generally talk about them, but not religious in, in any uh, conventional sense. But I also don't dog on religion like I used to. In my 20s and earlier 30s, I, I was very much of the Dawkins-esque. Yeah, you know, where I would shit talk religion all the time. And I've grown to, to understand that our worldviews are often characterized by systems that we're born into, social systems and, and religious systems. But we 
have the ability to decide which aspects of those systems actually resonate with us and they don't have to constrain our expressions of who we are, whether we're going to be generous or greedy or selfish or kind-hearted or cruel. Those are all who we are as a person and we can find any aspect of our religions to express those through. And that to me says a lot more about who a person is than what, if any, creed they profess to follow. There's any number of, let's say, Christians that you can hold up, you know, the Westboro Baptists or who are just filled with hate and they pick all the parts of their dogma that reinforce their hatefulness. And then there are people whom I've known personally who identify as Christian, but they reject all that. They emphasize kindness and generosity and caring charity and these kinds of things because that's who they are as, as people. So it doesn't bother yeah. me that they express that through the religion that they were born into. It's fine. To me, it matters less what somebody believes than what their actions are going to be. And if their actions mm -hmm. are going to be kind, then I am not all that bothered whether they're motivated by some internal wellspring of goodness or by the belief that essentially this is part of the divine and what they want. So long as they're doing good in the world, that's pretty much it as far as that goes. Mm -hmm. And as far as this guilt and fear of zoosexuality being a sin, I didn't struggle with that nearly as much as other people have at times, but I do acknowledge that that was a thought of mine when I was first learning about my attractions. Something along the lines of, I can't do this because if I do, it means that I'm somehow wrong. This is not God's plan for me to be like this. But then a lot of things convinced me that a perfect being like a god would not judge somebody for the form of love they have so much as for their willingness to treat others with kindness and patience and respect. And it may be a strange way of doing that to some people, but it is a way. And I don't think that God would make a mistake in that way. Well said. So, as I said, we have gathered a few different faiths from around the world to talk about how different religions past and present have viewed zoos, and thankfully, it's not just a matter of all zoos going to hell. That just makes me imagine a night in with Cerberus. Heads aren't the only thing he has in triple. Anyway, take us away, Lovecat. We'll be back with more Zooey Than Thou right after this word from our sponsors. This week's podcast is brought to you by... The Bitch Boutique. Get that bitch's spa package. Bitches love spa packages. And also by Barry's Bleating Botanical Landscaping Service. Tired of your front yard attracting the ire of internet vigilantes? With Barry's unique animal-based landscaping service, you can bring the grazing pastures into the city and benefit from nature's original lawn maintenance system. Barry's. We bleat the shit out of the competition. And finally, the 2021 U.S. COVID stimulus package. Barely enough to cover rent for a month, but definitely better than nothing. Tired of the same old sex with the same old real-life partners day in and day out? Sick of practicing the Kama Sutra with a bunch of faceless, real-life hookups you don't remember the next day? Of course you are. Why not spice things up with a piece of strange that's seriously unreal? Visit Betty's Bestiality Brothel and try something new. Betty's is the authority on all things interspecies, from familiar farm animals to otherworldly, exotic beasts from the jungles of India or wherever. No matter how fantastic the fantasy, Betty's can deliver. 
At Betty's Bodacious Bordello, we understand that everyday normal guys get the urge to try something different. You're not interested in a committed, real-life relationship with a non-human partner full of responsibility and devotion. You're not a zoophile after all. You're just curious. Curiosity never killed anyone, did it? That's why at Betty's, we offer the best in imaginary services that sate your sensual desires. No strings attached. Prowl with a panther. Canoodle with a camel. Get serviced by the stallion of your dreams. Discover just how bad a dragon can really be. The possibilities are limited only by your imagination, because Betty's banging brothel is based entirely within your mind. Betty's isn't limited to reality-based experiences, and that sets the stage for us to deliver the brothel experience you've been dreaming of. Look for our brochures at welcome centers throughout Europe and in the rural United States. We're definitely there, without a doubt. Or check out our website. Sure, there's no physical address there, but that's for your security. Once you click pay now, we'll find the closest, non-existing location to your area. No problem. Trust us. Don't miss out on special VIP treatment for card-carrying high rollers. Have the funds to provide the wonderful life to the mayor of your dreams on an actual farm with years of actual sex you'll both treasure and celebrate forever? But too self-hating and conflicted about your cross-species orientation to actually live the happy life of your dreams? No problem. For the right price, we'll help you maintain the flimsy pretense that you are zoo and deliver the imaginary experience of a night of pure rapture with a horse who knows just what she wants and isn't shy about her demand that you deliver. To top it all off, and exclusively for our VIP clients with more money than self-honesty, we'll deliver a five-star, four-course dining experience for you and imaginary non-human paramours of your choice. It might seem too good to be true, but that's only because it is. Take that gorgeous heifer on the date of her dreams. We'll serve your post-coital feast in your private VIP stall, complete with 500 thread-count haystacks. For those with money to burn, Betty's bombastic bathhouse delivers more than just unreal interspecies sex, all without ever needing to admit you yourself what everyone else's Zudar has told them long ago. If you're looking for a sexual experience you'll never forget, no one does it like Betty's. No one. Literally no one. No one does it. With new imaginary locations opening every day, it's easier than ever to visit a Betty's bestiality brothel near you. Come on by today. All right, everyone. Uh, welcome back. We are joined for a really exciting discussion on different traditions of zoo sexuality throughout the world, because after all, it's not just growing up in Christian households or secular households or whatever. There's a lot of different views on animals and spirituality. I've brought two very special guests. Joining me today is Mark. Mark is a pagan zoo who very kindly volunteered to help us out here. And also joining us is Nadi Nufi. You may know her from Twitter. She is someone of Native American heritage, and we can learn quite a bit from her as well. So, Mark, why don't we start with you? What do you... Sure. Where did the spiritual experience of zoos begin? Well, there is no need to be nervous about the subject. I've mm -hmm. grown very comfortable with the subject between zoophilia and religion because, quite frankly, the two are very interconnected. And they're more interconnected mm -hmm. than people would think. So um, yeah. I guess I'll just start with a brief intro into my life. So I've been zoo for most of my life, and I've always had a deep faith in God. And I've always been fascinated by how religion helps us find that spiritual fruit of how to find peace in our lives. 
I was raised as a Southern Baptist, and my childhood, I really couldn't complain about it because it was a pretty good childhood. I didn't really have any issues in school or with abuse that sometimes that dogmatism in the Christian faith can cause. So I would be lying if I didn't say I didn't retain some of those Christian teachings that I learned from my parents, to be honest, Mm -hmm. to be straightforward, those kind of uh, Christian values. But most of the people in the church are generally good people. Oh, 100%. They just can be a little dogmatic. They can be. So while I was in high school, right, in my teen years, I was serving at the local Baptist church as a assistant servant to the pastor there. And uh, I would help with Bible studies, help hold the barbecue plates and fundraisers and things like that. So, oh, God. <laughs> I was yeah, that guy I... in the back, you know, with the smiling flags, uh-huh. smiling in the back, serving you your barbecue plate. That, that was me. Yeah. Uh, during my teenage years. Classic Americana. But anyway, so the pastor, he went to seminary school for like, I think he got a master's in it. So he was very well educated. And I was fortunate that I was able to be there because I did learn a lot about Hebrew and Strong's references, different Mm -hmm. translations in Bibles. So it was a worthwhile experience. Definitely. So... After high school, I went on my own and there was a spiritual experience I had within my teenagers because I used to be in 4-H. So if you know what 4-H is, it's basically a nonprofit, like a Farmers of America kind of organization that's local. So I would raise show heifers for showing and uh, the profits would go to the 4-H club. So I'll talk a little more about that. But basically, when I first became attracted to animals, it was obviously the heifers that I was raising. And... There was some confusion there, and once I was able to get out of my household, I started looking into why I didn't feel so... Because some some people feel guilty mm-hmm. about their first experience. I didn't necessarily feel guilty as more as I felt yeah. confused. So of course. Eventually, I, I, I started venturing out of Christianity. I started studying other uh, pagan faiths, Hinduism mm-hmm. in particular. And I came to a point where I said, you know what? I couldn't believe that there's just one God and that these stories that were told... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's got to be something that these all these religions are pointing to one thing. They're pointing to something, but we just don't know because we lost so much information. So oh. I became a polytheist, so I can't really commit to one god or another. <laughs> hmm. That's what that's my story. Yeah, that sounds like a very I don't know. I would say profound experience, a very different one from other ones. Although it does remind me of Have you ever heard of the book The Horseman: Obsessions of a Zoophile? Yeah, Mark Matthews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that guy, for those of you who don't know, had a sort of similar life experience to the point of being the son of a Christian minister and even a minister himself before realizing that he was, well, a little different and starting to believe more in paganism and in other religious values because he just thought Christianity had its good points, but there were other things out there for him. So that's awesome. So moving on to, I guess, prehistoric man, because paganism has these Mm -hmm. ancient roots, one would also call them primitive sometimes, and there has to be something in that that's zoophilic. After all, those cave paintings that they found in Italy and France, clearly people were doing it thousands of years ago. Oh, of course. Most of my sources are from Hani Malinsky's book on zoophilia, so if you're listening to this, you can get her book and then read the section on zoophilia and history. It's like a prelude to the paper. So if you're looking for references to where to find these actual quotes from, I think she quotes mm-hmm. several books. She quotes masters. She quotes a couple of different guys who were actually there in the 60s and 70s before a lot of mm-hmm. this research became yeah. taboo. So mm-hmm. that's where my sources are from. So 
The oldest mm-hmm. evidence of Sufilian religion is the cave paintings and sculptures. For example, in temples and caves in Italy and France, there's actual depictions of men having sex with donkeys, and there's yep. one where he's having sex with a moose. Hmm. And then there's another set of cave paintings. It's showing entire clans of people who are having sex with their half-wild dogs. So likely this meant that bestiality was part of a tribal clan practice and it was probably pretty common for it to have been drawn like that. And it may have mm-hmm. been a religious act, even though we can't really tell if it was, but right. I find it hard to believe if it wasn't involved. Yeah, it had to have been important to them in a large amount if they were going to preserve it that way, you know? Absolutely. So yeah, it has spiritual significance to them, whether it's religious or not. Then you can go to like Mesopotamia, right? So we're talking mm-hmm. the Samaritans, the Babylonians, yeah, the Babylonians, the Akkadians, all that. So mm-hmm. in the Gilgamesh epic from the Babylon, the wild man hero and Kaidu is depicted as he can't stop having sex with animals, mm-hmm. and he's the only thing that cures him is a prostitute from Ishtar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the so, goddess of fertility just says, yeah. "All right, you've had enough. Have a woman." So basically, what it's saying, it takes an act of God to stop a zoo from being zoo. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. That's not wrong. No, it's not. So basically, if you want to stop zoos, you're going to need an act of God to do so. Yep. Besides that, in the Babylonian Gilgamesh, during the springtime of Babylon, there was fertility festivals, and it is documented that dogs were used to maintain this orgy for seven straight days. <laughs> oh my God. Like That's a lot of booze. That... that- yeah, that's a lot of booze. That's a lot of everything. I could not imagine lasting that. Anyway, yeah, that was a massive hey, festival. If you're going to celebrate the goddess of Ishtar or whatever god, yeah, you have to go all then, out. You 100%. have to go all out. Yeah. Uh, budget is not a concern. Nope. So that's just Babylon, but let's look at the Hittites because the Hittites were there. They yeah. were the peoples displaced by Israel before the Exodus. Huh? Mm-hmm. So the Hittites were neighboring Babylon, and, and they figured, okay, we're not as crazy as the Babylonians, so. It's okay Mm -hmm. if you can have sex with a horse or a mule, that has no punishment. But if you have Mm -hmm. sex with a cow or dog, that's punishable by death. So it seems like the Hittites had this distinction between clean and unclean. So it was probably some sort of religious view towards that because think about nobility or riding horses, right? But if you were to have sex with a dog, that's lowly. Yeah, you see the same sort of distinction in the Bible, too. Like, the idea that certain animals are pure, certain animals are impure, and there are different penalties, different things involved in there. So, culturally, that makes sense. Yeah, it's appropriate for the time and the location. So, on to Israel. The bestiality prohibitions in the Old Testament were for the Jewish people, because obviously the other Mm -hmm. nations didn't embrace this. But the reason that they did that was likely to separate their religious practices from the neighbors. So, yeah, even the Bible will tell you this, that you do not serve the nation's other gods, right? So obviously, mm-hmm. Zuphilia and bestiality were involved in the worship of the other nation's gods. So, yes, they were. That was the reason that they separated that. And mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that the Lord of the Bible is anti-Zoo, because it depends on your interpretation. And I'll go into that a little later on, but yeah. I think the listener should stick around for that, because you'll find Mm -hmm. that even the Jews themselves have a very interesting interpretation of Genesis. Yep. So we're just moving right along through the Middle East. So I guess we'll move on to one of the more famous nation states there. That would be Egypt. And yeah, Egyptian mythology is just full. That's a zoophile's paradise. (laughs) 
<laughs> you're worshipping animal-headed gods basically everywhere you look, no matter what you do. Uh, so, well, yes. actually, sometimes they just worship the animals directly. Did they? Why yeah. did it bother? Why bother with the human uh, part? Okay. I, agree, <laughs> I really like but... that idea of uh, seven-day dog orgy. That sounds like my idea of heaven. <laughs> it definitely does. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I would be fine with three, but, well, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so let me let me go into Egypt a little bit. So even Christians know a little bit about Egypt, because if we just mention Egypt, we say, mention one god, I bet you'll say Anubis, right? Because obviously definitely. that's probably the most famous one. But... That's because they believe that the animals themselves were part of the divine nature of the gods. So they incorporated animal nature into their gods. And the interesting part is, if you look at Egyptian history, the pre-dynasty period of Egypt, all the gods had half animal, half human. But later on, they started trying to remove the animal part and the people rebelled. And they continued to worship the animal version. That's wonderful. Like, wow, that's That's interesting. Even back then, people were having issues with the state enforcing what people should believe and not believe. And probably because whoever was ruling wanted to put themselves as more like the the gods. The king of Egypt later did declare himself as a god king. But let's not worry about so much of the politics. Here's something really interesting. The priesthood about Egypt, they weren't shy about loving animals for God. Because here is a scholarly quote. It's just, I'm going to try to pronounce this. His Samahikis the first. It was uh, part of a religious ritual for the high priest to copulate with a cow. With a cow. What? Yeah. Okay. That's right. <laughs> that seems a lot better than some ceremonies I've seen. <laughs> like, damn. Now, but but why right. is that? So, the high priest, the big Kahunas of that time, basically were saying to know God, to understand God, you have to have Zeus X involved. And this is likely because mm-hmm. there was reverence to the bull of Memphis, and there was another god called Hathor, who Hathor was either depicted mm-hmm. as a woman, or she was depicted as a cow with the sun above uh. between her horns. I don't know if you've ever seen that image. Oddly enough, by coincidence, I just watched the movie Gods of Egypt, and that's goddess of fertility, isn't she? Or love? Yes. One of those Yes. Things. So the idea behind this was that when the high priest would copulate with the cow, he was copulated with Hathor herself asking for a blessing for fertility Uh of the prosperous Nile. So basically, if you became a high priest, the first thing you're going to have to do is uh, start liking cows. Would you choose that career if you didn't already? It seems like an odd sacrifice to make if you really just... You're that devoted to the gods, but also you just can't stand the ceremonies that you've seen? I don't think so. I think they they had quite an enjoyment time as high priest. I would hope so, yeah. (laughs) But... Taking that of Egypt, so we're talking about Egyptian religion. So now we're going to cross over back to another religion, which is biblical religion. So the golden calf that the Israelites made in the wilderness was Hathor. It was a golden version of the goddess Hathor. Now, why would they make a version of Hathor? It was likely because the Egyptian religion did rub off on the Israelites, and they were seeking favor from the fertility goddess Hathor herself. So they made her image because they were in the wilderness. Yeah, they were afraid that they were going to starve, so they made an image of she who would provide them bounty and prosperity yes. in their view. So yeah. that is the priesthood of Egypt, so we could mm-hmm. see that it was actually a regular part of religious ritual. But probably the most famous temple in Egypt was the Temple of Mendes. And the Temple of Mendes is where men and women sought regular copulation with goats and seeking a fertility blessing from the god called the Goat of Mendes. 
Oh. Huh. Now, inside the temple, you would walk in, and men would be having sex with she-goats, while the women were being mounted by male goats, trained for this worshipful purpose. And it was supposedly documented that billy goats were being given oral sex to collect their semen without any loss or waste. Oh, I see. If your wife is having issues with fathering a child, maybe she needs to be mounted by a male goat first, and then she'll have a uh -huh. child after that. Seems to work because it was very popular at the time. Were there other ceremonies involved with the goats, or was it just... There was another ceremony that was used to cure nymphomaniacs at the time. So what they would do is, if a person was having issues with controlling their sexual mm -hmm. drive, they would supposedly have a room in the temple where they would keep them locked in with the goats until he tired all the goats from sex, and then supposedly then he was cured from his nymphomania. Wow. Well, it is a good outlet. Give you that. <laughs> <laughs> a perfectly healthy outlet, too. So, the goat of Mendes and the temple of Mendes was so successful that the Greek philosopher Plutarch reported that the women of the temple who served there later refused the advances of men, preferring the goat to sex partners. Well, I can completely understand that. <laughs> so, uh, here was something that I particularly like. The pyramids of Egypt. Most people don't know that they are religious symbols. Um, they represent mm -hmm. the tombing of the afterlife of the Egyptian kings, right? But I bet you did not know that the most famous religious symbol in Egypt was built mm -hmm. by a zoophile. Did you know that? Really? No, no, God, yeah. I didn't. Who built them? Besides the aliens from History Channel? No. No, it was a no, zoophile who built it. Oh, okay. It was a zoo called Cheops. And Cheops was documented for being known for his passion for mares and other animals. Ooh. So think about this. You're the king of Egypt, right? And you say, well, uh -huh. I'm going to die someday, so I need to build this huge religious image. So I know that all the priests basically are humping cows. So I figure mm -hmm. that the right guy as an architect is probably humping mares. So I'm going to go ahead and hire it. If you're tying love for animals with piety, then absolutely. Like, the guy who loves <laughs> them the most probably loves the gods the most. And exactly. And will do a good job. So, yeah. And he did do a good job. Well, clearly, they're still there. <laughs> you can't say that the zoophiles haven't left their mark on the world. Especially religiously, because how many Christians go and see the pyramids and you can point and say, Hey, look. Yeah, a mare fucker built that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you ever go to Egypt with your grandparents... I'm not sure if that's the right time, but you can do it. <laughs> no, when you go with your grandparents, you're always looking for the next camel. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, there's a, there's, a, there's a quote in Islam, I think. Something about the pilgrimage to Mecca, but anyway. So, moving on from Egypt, when you think of ancient civilizations, the next one that seems to come up is the Greeks. And if you know anything about their mythology, then come on. How many interspecies pairings are there? What are satyrs and centaurs and all these other things? Yeah, basically, I couldn't cover them all. No, naturally. <laughs> they were too it's... The Greeks were too zooey for this show. They just, <laughs> they, you, couldn't fit it, you couldn't fit it in the show. You can, I know. just couldn't do it. But I'll try to. Let's start with probably something that people remember. Is, you remember the Minotaur, right? Naturally. That scary monster, cowhead. Well, was he necessarily scary or was he just a furry? I mean... Big buff, muscly Minotaur. Furries looking at him now would probably be less horrified and more, I'll stay in this maze forever. Thank you. I don't need Yeah, pretty much. much. He, he would have a harem in no time. But <laughs> Yep. So that was a copulation of uh, Fasfay and the sacrificial bull that Poseidon brought out of the ocean for Minos, the king of Crete. So, yep. 
technically the Minotaur is the rightful heir to the throne of Crete, because technically he's Minos' ah, son. I suppose. <laughs> and also another thing I learned in researching stuff for this episode, because I wanted to know a little bit about Zeus's many affairs, because I knew that some of them happened. And apparently, according to some myths, Minos was also the son of Zeus, while Zeus was a bull. So, you know, just think about the odd irony of that. Like, you are the son of a bull, and then you marry a woman, and because of various things having to do with the gods, she also lays down with a bull. And then your son is half bull. Exactly. Would have been even if it was yours, but yeah, anyway. Technically, he would be the queen's son, but... Still, so he would have deserved it. Come on. Come on. Who doesn't yeah. want a minotaur on the throne? That would be pretty cool. It would. So we have the famous Leda and the Swan, which was Zeus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then we have Hermes. He became a goat to have sex with Penelope, which then yep. formed Pan. Mm -hmm. So these mythologies were so popular that during the plays in Greece, they would actually reenact these. Yep. So you would actually have a reenactment of basically Pan and the goat all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Like, especially during certain festivals, either religious ones or even just the Bacchanalia. A massive party celebration and zooey as hell. Yeah, so and the Bacchanalia, they, that was at the highest point of Greek civilization. And the Greeks were pretty much as zooey as you can get. I mean, they didn't have a problem with the zoo sex at all. And that was at the high point. This was not in their decline. This was at the, at the very peak. Yeah, when you think of Athens and the great philosophers, that was happening, and also these ceremonies of having animal lovers and worshipping the gods through that. Yeah, because think about it, let's assume that the animals were different gods' creations, right? So, what better way to know God than knowing his creation intimately? Of course. But that wasn't it. So the Greeks borrowed from the Egyptians on one thing. So they had a temple called the Temple of Astarte, which yeah. basically was like the goat of Mendes, but in Greece. So they ah. also cured nymphomaniacs by ritual sex with goats. These sorts of religious traditions do follow from culture to culture if there's enough trade and cultural exchange. So it's surprising and yet not that the Greeks would develop the same thing as the Egyptians did. Yeah. And... That was just one temple. There was another temple in Corinth, and the temple in Corinth at the peak supposedly had 10,000 prostitutes of both sexes, but also several hundred sacred prostitutional dogs. Wow. So we can see that the Greeks didn't have a qualm between religion and Zephilia at all. Oh, no, 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 no. It's a part of the stories of how the gods and men interacted. It's a part of the worship. It's just a part of life. Exactly. Because... Cultures were more agrarian back then, so they knew that animals enjoyed sex, and they enjoyed sex, mm -hmm. so they would share with the animals. It was that yeah. simple. And obviously the Greeks then got conquered by the Romans, who basically took their entire pantheon, and given Renamed what it. we just discussed, probably also the zooier side of it, at least somewhat. Which the Greeks stole from the Egyptians, so... Yeah, that too. You know, it all goes back. <laughs> Definitely. So like the Romans, it was documented that two sex was basically a regular practice of shepherds and shepherdesses. It was uh -huh. regular. And uh, one of the more famous orgies of Rome was that of the goddess of Bonadia, which featured prevalently bestiality with dogs. Yeah. So the Romans kept the tradition of the Greeks, but they also kept the live play shows that the Greeks uh, had. Yep. So they had a taste for that as well. And the most popular one was Fast Fade with the Bull. That was the most I can imagine that just in front of the Colosseum, just thousands, maybe 10,000, I don't know how many people 
just all watching this act of love or lust, whichever one it was at the time. Yeah. But think about the influence on that. And they said, well, you know, this is good enough for the gods. So if I'm out there shepherding, I don't mind uh, enjoying a, a, a good you for, mm -hmm. my, for my effort. But the thing about Rome, it's a little bit different than Greece, is that the emperor of Rome wasn't just the ruler, but he was also considered the high priest. I don't know if oh. you knew that. I did not, know. I always thought that they just got their power from the Senate somehow. But if they're no, also but, representatives of the gods yeah. or gods themselves, I guess that makes yes. sense. Yes, so they were the high priest and the emperor at the same time. So whatever the emperor was doing religiously, this is how Christianity eventually came into Rome was through Constantine. But because mm -hmm. Constantine had the authority of the high priest, he could do that. Uh -huh. But before Constantine, Claudius and Nero were said to have been addicted to bestiality. And they even had an orgy where Nero imported a hundred camels and had his male guests all have sex with them. That's a lot of camels. You'd have to have a That's massive a hall and you'd have to have water and food for all... He, exactly. Wow. And not only that, to have them imported from Arabia, that must have been very expensive. Definitely. So you could say that Nero was very dedicated to being Zooey. Yeah, if you're going to spend that much time and effort to give your guests that kind <laughs> of party experience, then absolutely. Which must have been really exotic for them at the time, because obviously they're from a land hundreds to thousands of miles away. It's unlikely that the guests would have ever even seen camels, and now they get to sleep with them. Oh, yeah, that's what you call hospitality. <laughs> so, the last emperor I'm going to talk about is Gaius Flavius Valerius Constantinus, or Constantine the Great, right? Mm -hmm. So, Constantine the Great was the one who later Christianized Rome. He had the yeah. Council of Nicaea in 300. But, mm -hmm. before that happened, he had a very colorful nickname. His nickname was Cowfucker. Now, why was he given <laughs> that nickname? Because... He was known to have sex with cattle. Of course. Here we go again, right? We have the emperor, yep. but the emperor is a high priest. What other priesthood was mm -hmm. also having sex with cattle in history? The Egyptians. Yeah. <laughs> so that yep. Egyptian tradition has continued. But I don't think we can say that the Romans were necessarily against Zui interests or Zui religion. No, no, they definitely were not. They had too much interest in it in general to be really yeah. against it. It, you have people who, like intellectuals, they love the Greeks and they love the Romans, but they tend not yeah. to see the other parts that were cultural that were part of that faith that they had, which was they did not see the distinction between man and animal so much as we do now. Or at the very least, like some philosophers tried to invent one or to come up with one. And there, there's the story of, I believe it was Socrates. I don't remember. Don't quote me on that. But tried to define a man as a bipedal animal without hair or feathers. Then the philosopher Diogenes saw that, laughed at it, and then plucked the chicken and brought it over and said, hey, look, a man. So, <laughs> you know, that if that distinction was so poorly understood that they were still trying to define what made them different, how important could it have been to their culture at the time? Well, it's easy to talk about philosophers, but for the average everyday yeah. Roman, they saw the animals as the providers for their food at their table, and sex with them was just another service that was provided by the animals. And in a way, it may have been more of a religious thing, because obviously the mythologies and their gods, they have regular sex with animals, and I don't see any problem with it. In no, other words, the priesthood of the Romans weren't going to tell you anything about it. No, definitely not. They had more important things to worry about. But yeah, the whole lack of lines between men and animals just kind of makes me think of reincarnation, of 
Hindus are the main ones that are known now for that belief, but there are other ones. The idea that the soul isn't just a human thing, that it sort of goes between human and animal back mm-hmm. and forth, so that really the distinction is less clear than in yes. other ideas. Or that the soul can sit in a place of nothingness, or it can go to nirvana, which was what the Buddhists mm-hmm. were saying, so to join with yeah, the yeah. great source. So that's a good topic to start on, because I think we're going to cover the Hindu faith next anyway. Mm-hmm. So... The Hindu faith has always been very Zuni, and even in modern times, we still see some scattered Hindu practice of religious Zuphilia. So I think the reason that Hinduism and Zuphilia are not necessarily butting heads, even in modern times, because like you were mm-hmm. saying, the belief in transit, the migration of souls between humans and animals, mm-hmm. that helped accept Zuphilia to a degree, yeah. um, even mm-hmm. in modern times in India. Yeah. But sex with animals has always had a special significance among certain Hindus, but especially mm-hmm. among the Hindu holy men. And the reason for this is because a human having sex with an animal is actually a human having sex with a god, incarnated in the form of an animal. Ah, that makes sense too. Especially given the vast variety of gods that Hindus Billions. of different types revere, you know? Billions, Billions. yeah. Billions. But here's something you have to understand about Hindus, is that mm-hmm. they are mostly vegetarian. Yes. So the cow, her body, if you were to slaughter her, would only produce so many calories, mm-hmm. so much sustenance. But if you don't slaughter her and you milk her for her life, she produces mm-hmm. millions of calories, millions yeah. of food. So they see the cow as the god of sustenance and providing, which is we've seen mm-hmm. in other religions we've seen oh, yes, in the course. egyptians but the hindus mm-hmm. still practice this so she is a god but she is a sacrificial god so you look at for example some things people understand is jesus christ with his body mm-hmm. this is my body my bread right my body is the bread. yes my blood yeah, is yeah. my life okay mm-hmm. the hindus literally see the cow like jesus because she does literally give her life when she dies She's slaughtered. Mm-hmm. She gives her flesh as bread. But okay. her blood and her sacrifice, they continue their lives and existence. Huh. That's how they see it. So when a holy man has sex with a cow, he's having sex with a god that provides him his very living. And hmm. he sees it as this. When you have sex with a cow, what you're doing is you're sacrificing your seed that could procreate with another woman and have one life. You're giving that up to God. You're giving that up to God because ah, you gave up that opportunity to form a child. That's why it's sacred. It is a sacrifice. That is a really interesting perspective on it. Like, I'm just historically more familiar with Western religions, Christianity, Judaism, and, like, the idea that one should not waste sperm is prevalent in mm-hmm. some verses. Like, but see, but, this but is the exact in, opposite. This is it's not, not yeah, this is not wasting it. This is sacrifice. sacrificing it as a devotion to the divine. Exactly. Because yeah. that same seed could form life, but instead you give it to the God that gives you sustenance. Yeah. It's a sacred thing. So we take that, and this is a quote from sources, so having given that interpretation, mm-hmm. it said that sex with the sacred cow is believed a good fortune, and that's mm-hmm. the good fortune I was talking about. So in the cities, it's known that the youths are known to have their first orgasm dangling from the rump of a sacred cow. Wow. So even the youth understand that sacrifice and I want to mention it now because I'm going to bring this uh-huh. back in. So it's my own yep. life experience. So I raised 4-H cattle. And just like those Hindus youths that lost their virginity to cows, I myself as a Christian at the time, 
lost my virginity to the sacred cow rum. Ah. And that was the moment in my life I felt something different. I felt mm -hmm. that little bit of Hindu spirit in me because I was confused. I wasn't upset. But I felt that that was something special and I didn't understand it at the time. It is it's something a, very special. It's an emotional and spiritual connection to another living thing and a feeling of closeness that is hard to describe to somebody who hasn't had it at that point, or at least hasn't with another species. So I felt, because most of the forage cattle, they either go to slaughter mm -hmm. or they go to milking farms or they go in straight into breeding after that. So mm -hmm. that heifer that I raised, it was pretty much a sacred moment. It is a religious yeah. moment because mm -hmm. that would be the last time that I would basically see her and I would never see her again. Yeah. And it was a sacrifice of myself that I gave to her by having yeah. regular sexual relations with her, which was a wonderful thing because she enjoyed it as well. But oh, I felt that Hindu spirit. I understood it. And naturally, that experience in its own way through the years led you to your own beliefs now. It did. Because I, it took me almost, let's see, I got out of high school. So four years I was serving in the Baptist church. And the funny thing was I was still having sex with those heifers during the time I was still studying in the, as a, like a seminary school. But it took me... About two or three years after I got away from my parents to finally understand some of these things that I'm talking about now. So you went from Southern baptism through finding this connection with other life through your spiritual journey to what you are now, which is a polytheist pagan. And mm -hmm. I've heard that there are like a lot of zoophile pagans out there. <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm involved with a group that has like, I don't know, 30 of them. Oh, it's wow. Popular. Nice. And I'm not going to speak for all of them because pagan, look, you, you try to say, well, what is paganism? It's like, well, which one are you talking about? Wiccans? You're talking about... Yeah, what, exactly. The, there there are as many kinds of paganism. Yeah, exactly. So trying to attempt to correlate Zephyria with paganism is like trying to pin a tail on 40 different cats. It's like, I can't do it. So what I did instead was in my own group, I decided to take a few quotes and I asked them, you know, how does... Zephyria and your paganism relate to each other. So I'm just going to read some quotes. Oh, sure, so, sure. Um, somebody said, It's more about the spiritual bonds that develop with each other, seeing ourselves as part of nature rather than above it. Another person said, Sex magic in its most basic form is to celebrate the act of primal creation because the great rite represents female energies and the masculine energies intertwining with each other to form new creation. So I'm going to. Mm -hmm mentioned that he's talking about new creation right so you go back to the hindu sacrifice and you compare that mm -hmm. they're sacrificing the creation of life sure so in a way there's a common understanding between these different religions there there's is. another quote here it says most pagans use shore devotion and our spiritual practice with walking hand in hand with our animal partners and doing so for each other keep each other happy to look out for our well-being and their well-being most of the spells Around it is spells of protection and spells of healing. Oh, I have heard of at least a few zoos who, through one form of pagan ceremony or another, consider themselves married to their partners. Like, I have a limited understanding of this, obviously, but mm -hmm. there are some who either become in some way ordained as pagan ministers themselves or something, and then perform these marriage ceremonies. And yeah. it's just a very special thing. In our coven, Animal spousehood's regular occurrence, and we, we even have, a, well, we can't have it in person, but we have virtual marriages where people will celebrate mm -hmm. and enjoy the good tidings of that. Wonderful. Wonderful 
Yeah. So the last quote, and this is the one that really got to the point of connecting these religions together and their thinking. So he says, I worship animals because they give us their bodies as bread and their blood as the sacrifice for our continued existence. Isn't this awfully close to the Christ with the sacrifice? And don't we owe them a debt of gratitude and bowing low to the earth before them for the sacrifice? So this gentleman is a literal animal worshiper. Ah. That was his reasoning. Yes. Yeah, very much like the Greeks and the Romans and various others of old. Essentially, the animal and the divine aren't separate. There's not a hierarchy between them. It's just they are, one is an extension of the other. And to know the gods, you have to know animals. And what better way to know so than intimacy? Exactly. What I've seen in the zoophile pagan world is that it's not uncommon for pagan zoos to call their animal mates using like spousal names like husband or wife. That's not unusual. It's actually very natural uh, among us. And the concept of, see, when you say animal marriage to somebody, they say, that's ridiculous. Because marriage in a Judeo-Christian world is mutual, Mm -hmm. right? It's supposed to be egalitarian. But not in the same way that pagans see it. So... Right. Some pagans see it as it's not a egalitarian method. It's a master and slave. So when uh. a human marries an animal, he's mm-hmm. choosing to become the animal's slave. He's saying, oh. I am making a commitment to you for your entire life. So animal marriage in a pagan sense is like a commitment of indentured servitude. It's seen as almost the opposite of what one who was skeptical of marriage would think. Like somebody who was opposed to marriage because of its traditions of, I don't know, being patriarchal or something would probably say that it was difficult Mm -hmm. to justify given that these two beings are supposed to be equal. But then, no, what you're saying is that in this view, it's more of a matter of this commitment is me choosing to give you of myself. Yes. And here's the thing. In the ceremony, it's not uncommon to hear words like, so you hereby take this animal before witnesses to hold you to her or to him, to life and love and that. So it's committing the people who are attending to make sure that the person who is marrying this animal doesn't abandon that animal. It's it's enforced by the witnesses that came to your wedding. So Mm -hmm. if they ever saw anything, they're going to bring it up to you. God, why does that make me think of... In every marriage that I've been to, there's a line just like that, where essentially they call upon the congregation as witnesses, make sure that they do well as a couple and can Mm -hmm. prosper. And then everyone in the ceremony says, we will. Same thing here. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's almost like there's a law in the Old Testament that if a slave wanted to become permanent for his master, he would take his ear, put it against the post, and the master would slam it all through it, marking him. So that is essentially what pagan Zephilian marriage is. It's that you're marking that ball yes. to that animal. Ah. The, their blood is on your hands. It's like that. I think that's about everything I could cover. But there's always been historically this relationship between Zephilian religion that mm-hmm. were always associated with the priesthoods of those religions who were the faithful of their time. So the religious hatred of Zephilia is a modern dogma. Oh, it is. It's, oh. it's a modern dogma. It has no place in modern pagan faiths when we look back at the history of them. It has no reason to be persecuted. It has to do with a lot of power dynamics, but when we cover the Abrahamic faiths, we'll probably get to the reasons why that arose as an attitude. But before we get to that, I'd like to move on to Nadi. We're going to move across the ocean here to Nadi Nufi, 
Now, you are, as I understand it, of indigenous descent? That is correct. Urapecha is the tribe. And you know something of the history of your tribe and how they have treated animals in the past. Does that line up with what Mark here has been saying somewhat? Not a whole lot of anything explicitly Zooey has survived the rise of Christianity, but there's definitely some integral differences in perception that native peoples have toward non-humans. Like what, for example? Like, in isolated towns, working dogs are literally part of the family. There's no talk of rehoming or culling or abandonment or anything like that. Once a non-human enters a family, they will die within that family, which is... I think a concept that's familiar to a lot of zoos. Oh, of course. Yeah. It's treating them as beings with, for lack of a better word, souls. So, of course, that makes perfect sense to me. Exactly. Um, Dogs that are too old to work are retired to their favorite sunny spot, and they enjoy lots of naps, loves, Mm spoon-fed their meals for the rest of their days, and when they pass away, they're grieved for with no mind to difference in species. Like, Uh this non-human was your partner, and they gave you their life, their youth, working for you. The belief is that nursing them in their golden years as part of the family is the very least you can do, because non-humans have been considered sentient, competent individuals with their own thoughts, feelings, and personalities among First Nations people since time immemorial. Mm -hmm. Among purely indigenous folks, so I guess folks that are slightly farther removed from the horrors of colonialism. They're regarded as our relatives. So it's not that unusual that there are still a lot of folk tales in which native peoples get into marriages with bears and buffalo and wolves and dogs. They perform so many services for us and with us, much like Mark was saying. Like... I mean, obviously, this isn't the same tribe, but there are plenty of instances in which Native Americans have essentially hunted down, let's say, buffalo on the Great Plains, and then used every part of the animal because this was a sacrifice the animal made, and to waste any of it is to be disrespectful to them. Absolutely. You have to thank the spirit for its sacrifice, because if it weren't for that spirit, you wouldn't be alive. Exactly. And to just go about not acknowledging that is uh, pretty disrespectful. So, obviously, these cultures arose on their own, and then in came European settlers and colonizers. And when they saw these cultures so different from them, what did they do and how did the native peoples change as a result? Well, for that, for some reason, we have an imaginary line drawn between what would have been parts of Texas, um, Mm -hmm. Colorado, and Mexico, because what happened slightly north of that was, um, I mean, everybody should know the Trail of Tears. Um, Native Americans were forced to march to reservations in addition to being murdered, genocided, all of that wonderful, beautiful colonialism. Also re-educated, having the children taken to do that. Yeah, all that stuff. Yep. That same thing happened south, except being put to death was higher up on the list of things that they would do to you. Like, there was no talk of being moved to reservations. They would just murder you if you practiced your religion, if you spoke your language. Wow. For, yeah. They would literally kill you if you didn't speak, I guess it was Spanish? Yeah, I mean, like, once Hernan Cortes helped 
overthrow King Moctezuma that kicked off the violent colonization and, and subsequent genocide of the Aztec Empire, wherein mm-hmm. practicing any Aboriginal religion or speaking the native language was punishable by death, and uh, bits of 63 languages, I believe, were kept alive by being spoken in secret, and uh, they've been making a resurgence in the last 30 or so years. Well, that's good. Along with the songs and stories that accompanied them. And likely a uh, zooey breed of dog. Oh, the... What's it called? Galupo Perro Lobo. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I think I've heard of that. Yeah, just about the same time that the... um, native tongues were experiencing a resurgence, work started going into developing that breed. And from what I've read, the purpose of this dog is to, let's see, how do I put this? Preserve the ancient culture and tradition of kinophilia. Wow. <laughs> Hold on. Hold. So that sounds hey, pretty zooey. It, it does, but let me get this straight. So some people in this part of the world decided to take dogs and breed them specifically to continue sexual practices with human beings. Is that is that what we're getting at? Or is it more of a spiritual connection? Or both? I don't quite know because a lot of that is kept super deeper secret, but I know that in history there was something very similar to the Perro Lobo, which is just basically Mexican wolf dog that was worshipped and kept with very, very high regard amongst the Aztecs and Nahuatl people and Mexica, obviously. And it was kind of lost during the conquest of Cortez and all of Uh Europe. And they're just now starting to look into our roots and bring it back. Wow, that is amazing. It's kind of like Jurassic Park. Actually, no, it's not. Not at all. I'm not even sure why I said that, but never mind. Uh, it's a little so, easier. It's more right. like <laughs> you get a Mexican wolf and breed it with something shepherdy. I see. Okay. I was about to say, are you thinking about the raptors of Jurassic World and what was he doing teaching them all those commands? I will be honest. There mm-hmm. is something a little zooey about Chris Pratt. Yes. Like there training is these zooey. raptors. Definitely. Yeah. I just wanted to say this about lost knowledge is like, uh-huh. You can look back at where all these religions intersected, right? And they all intersected at one time in Babylon and Mesopotamia. And then after uh-huh. that, they spread and then they all kind mm-hmm. of distinguished themselves. But the sure. Library of Alexandria held all that knowledge up until that point. Mm-hmm. The loss of that, we will never know what the actual base were saying back in that time. We just don't know. And now we have bits and pieces here. Some of them are true, yep. some of them are not, mm-hmm. but you know, they're all giving the same picture. It's kind of why the flood story is kind of the same in every religion, because there's something sure. that did happen, but we just don't know because we lost that library. We do have, oddly enough, those two different threads here. On the one hand, the common origins of many of these beliefs throughout Indo-European and even Asian cultures. And on the other hand, you have similar, though not entirely the same beliefs arising almost independently in North and South America with native peoples. Just this idea of we live within and among nature, we should respect it, and there is something divine in that. And you have similar stories there as well as similar stories of the loss of that. Eventually, as cultures evolved and as a dominant culture sort of spread over everything. But that's something we can get into at another time. So... Nufi, was there anything else you wanted to add about indigenous people's view of animals and of how they connect to spirituality? I suppose that uh, one way that the culture has shifted 
since then is mm -hmm. that due to the influence of Christianity, any practices condemned by uh, the new Spanish ruling class, aka uh, things uh, written in, in, I'm not sure which version of the Bible, were kept very secretive in order to appear to have a heteronormative nuclear family. Even today, the practice of kidnapping your bride, knowing her family will never look for her or have any chance of finding her is alive and well. And among queer peoples, having a beard marriage just to have children is the norm. And oh. all these things happen so often because single people are considered to be lower class. So the pressure to assimilate is real. That is very odd. And yet at the same time, there are like zooey pockets within that. I'm referring, of course, to donkey sex in Colombia, which is a highly Catholic nation, highly religious. But at the same time, their view on it is very similar to the Hindu view of, as an adolescent, the best way to deal with your sexual urges is to find a donkey to love, find an animal to love. That is true. I'm uh, pretty sure the town is Tierra Baja, Carajena. Ah, ah. And I guess I'll close out with a little quote that translates mm -hmm. to, uh, they tried to bury us, but they did not know we were seeds. Ellos trataron de enterarnos, pero no sabían que éramos semillas. Thank you both very much for talking with us. Later on, we're going to talk a bit more about the Abrahamic faiths and how they feel about all this. But first, stick around for more zooier than thou. In the mountains to the south, there lived a mighty king and queen. But the queen, she got an earache about the worst they'd ever seen. From her ear they pulled a worm and let it grow upon a string. And the worm became a dog they called Penhu the Doggy King. Penhu the Doggy King. Now Penhu grew big and hearty with five colors in his fur. And he sat beside the king as his whole court began to stir. Any man who kills King Gal for me and brings me back his head gets my daughter's hand in marriage and a life with her in bed. Life with her in bed. Now Penhu, he started running and he slipped into the fort. There to seek a friendly audience with Gao's excited court. King Gao chuckled at his enemies so cowardly and weak that his dog had run away from him to join him on the peak. Join him on the peak. Old King Gao, he held a feast and there he ate and drank his fill. He passed out inside his chambers, and he paid his final bill. And who bit down on his neck long past the point where he was dead. And he ran back down the mountain, bearing down with King Gao's head. Down with King Gao's head. And who, and who, you found an opportunity to make your dream come true. Your lover made a plan and sent you off to see it through. Now run to find your princess and become the king, Penhu. When Penhu came to the court, the king was joyful and amazed. He had many treats prepared and every soldier gave him praise. 
But Pen, who refused to eat, he wouldn't take a single lick. And the king asked what was wrong with him and what had made him sick. What had made him sick? Well, the king was mighty shocked that that great dog began to speak. And he said, there's just one reason I went up to King Gow's Peak. I have always loved her daughter, and I wish to share her bed. And I will not eat a drink until the day that we are wed. Day that we are wed. Then the king began to argue, for the price was pretty steep. But the promise had been made, and so a promise he would keep. He got married in the mountains, and to this day they still sing of the unexpected triumph of Van Who the Doggy King. And who the Doggy King? And who? Your longing for your queen would breed a kingdom just for you. Your many sons and daughters ruled the valley, it is true. And it all grew from a princess and her love for you, Pen Who. Hello and welcome back. We're going to continue our discussion. Uh, joining us again is Mark, who discussed a lot of different traditions. And we also have Jack, who has been on the show before as Wolf. Some of you may know him. Hello. So since you haven't been here yet, let's start with you, Jack. Tell us a bit about your experiences as a person of faith. Okay, so I was raised in a Southern Baptist and Protestant environment with a uh, family that went to church, and they taught me the basics of the faith when I was like seven to eight years old, and at that time I didn't really show much interest in it, but uh, later on I came to express my feelings when I started reaching the age of 10, so realizing that I was a little different. I didn't know really why I was different, but I just knew that I had these feelings for animals. And uh, mm -hmm. I sort of reached out to find some answers. But during that time, I started finding out more about the Christian faith and what it said. And when I found out about what the Bible said, especially according to the Protestant faith, it was some major sin or whatever. And I just like, mm -hmm. wait a minute, why is that? How is how I feel a sin? Like, I can't help this. Like, like I didn't mm -hmm. understand that. And so it caused a lot of yeah. problems for me, a lot of depression, and actually, if anything, led me to seek deeper into finding out what real Christianity was about, because I grew up to believe that I was saved, born again, because it was kind of like this deal, like this ritual, to where if you go in front of the altar and pray this prayer, you're automatically saved and stuff, but I knew that something wasn't truly happening in my life, so I went to go seek out mm -hmm. different answers read a little bit of the Bible, but mostly I found out about this website called I'llBeHonest.com, where I watched hmm. several sermons by a variety of different uh, pastors like Tim Conway. I also watched a few videos of uh, ah. John Piper, people I didn't even know anything about. And I found out that, that what they were teaching mm -hmm. was a whole lot different than what you would turn on TV. I was like, wow, like this is actually mm -hmm. real what they believe, and, and they seem out so different, so humbly and patient, and that they're not teaching about like this ways to fix your life, ways to improve your health or success or finance or something mm -hmm. like that. They were really concerned about you know things of scripture. So I found that really quite yeah. intriguing. 
So at the time, you yeah, know, yeah. I had seen a lot of sermons about, you know, homosexuality, what people thought of it. But one thing I did realize about those pastors versus um, the kind of pastors that you see on TV is that they were actually a lot more patient, kind than what you would hmm. say, because I see some pastors that are just really stuck up in their ways and, and mm-hmm. they're mean and they're very rude to people. And I see like yeah. I've seen street preaching before and and they say things are very hurtful mm-hmm. to people. I would know a bit or two about street preaching. Oh, you what? Why? Because you've seen it or you have you done it? Yeah, I, I was actually involved with that. I wore a sandwich board that said the end really? is nigh. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. And there was a time we did go to a Pride event. This was back in the early 2010s. This was pre-gay marriage. And at that time, uh-huh. I was already having sex with my cow. So I just said, you know what? I'll go anyway uh-huh. because might as well. I mean, I'm, I'm already in the church. They already trust me to handle everything mm-hmm. else. So I just went along with it. And it was quite the spectacle back then. I think they've toned it down some in the years because people don't put up with that as much. But... Yeah, yeah, I can understand where Jack is coming from, the the fire and brimstone type of preaching, you know, the signs. And yeah, the, and absolutely. The, like the megaphones and the Bible thumping, hellfire, uh-huh. Southern Baptist preaching. <laughs> yeah. 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 I I, mean, I'm very familiar with I have that. limited experience in it, but uh-huh. like I do remember being rather obnoxious about that in middle school, too. Just... The idea being that I am saved and I need to make sure that everyone else is as well, because that's literally the only thing that matters. And at that point, you can justify saying and doing anything that you think will help others in the long run, even if it's especially like mean spirited or shocking, just because if you don't pull out all the stops, then how are you going to save people? Yeah, and and they're trying to imitate John the Baptist. I'm out here in the river baptizing. I'm here eating locusts, mm-hmm. eating honey, that kind of yeah, preaching. Of but the, the difference is when you realize that there's just so many issues, not which is the Baptist church, but it's these, these denominations that they can't even agree on translations. The translation issue between churches, that alone was yeah. one of the things yeah. that got me into reading not only the Bible myself, but reading other Bibles and then comparing. Yeah. Like, yeah. Most people don't know that in, and I think it's in Acts chapter two, it literally says that Jesus went to hell in the King James Version. Yes, yeah, yes, it does. You know, and really and then you take that version, now you read like the NIV, it doesn't say hell, it says Sheol. Right. What was seen as the Jewish land of the dead. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you have the Baptist preaching hellfire, and I'm like, hey, Jesus went to hell, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that was different. That was Sheol. So then why didn't your Bible say that? Oh, mm-hmm. we did leave the 1611, 1611, you know, mm-hmm. dump that Bible. I was like, come on, man. Uh, there was just issues in the denominations and in Christianity. So I, I yeah. separated myself from denominations. Yeah, exactly. And I just started reading myself. And I said, you know what? I, I, I'm not necessarily going to be mm-hmm. part of this Baptist church. Because one, I was, like I said, I already found out sure. I was a file at this point. By the time I mm-hmm. was in my late yeah. teens, I was discovering my queerness. And later I, I mm-hmm. came out as gay men. And then not only that, yeah. but the contradictions in a lot of these doctrines, it's just, okay, wait a minute. Yeah. I'm going to have my own view. I'm going to study the Christian religion myself. And I'm going to say, this is what I believe is the truth of the Christian religion. So if you're a Christian, you have to believe these things. If you're mm-hmm. going to be a Hindu, yes. you have to believe these things. Mm-hmm. So making your own determination of the Christian faith on your own, I think is really important. So Jack talking about the Hellfire Bible thumping preachers, just, it just brought up those memories, you know? Oh, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Oh, of course. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
especially the contradiction with these much kinder, gentler ones, the ones who actually seemed more concerned with saving individual souls than in, I don't know, some kind of appearance of righteousness. Yeah, so, uh, mm-hmm. so Jack, what yeah. happened after that? So after I started, you know, doing more research and stuff, I started uh, finding out that what I thought was the face of Christianity, according to Protestant Baptist faith, was actually um, mm-hmm. dumbed down. I don't know how to explain it. Dumbed down, truncated. It's it was sort of as a solution to draw the public into giving these pastors money. Oh, I see. Because you see, if you preach health mm-hmm. and wealth, well, what does most people want? They want to be healthy. They want wealth. They want fame, and they want the, the fulfillment and of their desires and dreams to succeed. And mm-hmm. if that's what you're giving to people, and that's what you're preaching that God is about, and being, you know, this is what it means to be a Christian. And people are just like, oh, wow, I'll come to Jesus. Sure, I'll accept his, his teachings, you know, and I'll accept him into my heart if he's going to help me with my life and my plans and so on and so forth. <laughs> so mm-hmm. they label themselves and think that they're a Christian and following mm-hmm. uh, a true Christian faith. But when in fact, they're led right into the lie of believing that God is there mm-hmm. to fulfill their purpose rather than vice versa. Yeah. Us, human beings, made it in mm-hmm. the image of God to serve God and His purposes. So of that's course. kind of what I wanted to hit up on, is just the yeah. twisting that these certain people do, and it leads to a lot of people into a mm-hmm. false religious morality, and that's a lot of what the kind yeah. of self-righteous people that we're dealing with, especially for groups like us who really aren't religious it has a, a lot to do with, I feel, the legal system, which I didn't find out until later. I thought, yeah. like, oh, dear, I didn't know that there was such a strong legal system against this. Like, what's the purpose of having yeah. a system? Surely it has to be some sort of an emotional reaction because I don't see nothing wrong with having intimate relationships with a different species. Sure. So um, mm-hmm. that kind of disturbed me in some way. There's a lot of people who believe that they're on the right path when in fact they're being deceived by themselves and they often turn against people like us to think that we're some sort of enemy to them. And mm-hmm. That's not the case. This sort of dichotomy between what is preached and what seems to be the actual core of these doctrines is absolutely ancient. If you read the Gospels, then a lot of Jesus's sermons and proclamations are going against the religious order of his time. Like the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, a lot of it is essentially, look at these people acting so pious and noble and yet forgetting about the poor, forgetting about the downtrodden, and generally just using this as a tool to gain worldly status. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of my struggles with faith as a teenager involved my reconciling that with some artifacts of that kind of behavior I was finding in the Christian church, like essentially having products for sale related to saints, for example, or just biblical figures within church lobbies, like basically having a gift shop, which is a very strange concept to me when you consider Jesus overturning tables at the temple. So I absolutely understand how that contradiction would make one struggle so hard with understanding what really is the point of all this. Especially as somebody who is being, in some cases, preached against for reasons that aren't entirely clear either. But at the same Mm -hmm. time, although that's a common view of Christianity and, well, also Judaism and Islam to an extent, that's not the only view. 
Right, absolutely. What Mark was uh, showing me earlier is that there's many other views and interpretations of Scripture, that there isn't just one as the one that we know we've been shown all throughout American history. I think it started in sort of like the Protestant divide, Protestant-Catholic divide, but over time it sort of gets more dumbed down by people. Like they start uh, drifting and making more stuff up, and it's led into the problems that we have today. And I just hope that what I have here will help clear some of that stuff up and uh, how it relates to us as a whole and the changes that can be made if we follow the right steps. And So on Jack's point of bringing up the church and the politics, it seems that they've always been intertwined. At least when I was in a church, there was heavy involvement in politics. While they legally couldn't directly endorse a candidate because they would lose their nonprofit status, you could kind of tell they would always lean towards the more conservative candidates. Now, I think the Episcopalian churches and the Metropolitan churches, they tended to lean a little bit more center-left. But what I usually saw was the churches in my area, they were usually conservative and the laws they would pass. We know Mm -hmm. that all about the morality laws and sodomy laws that were passed that were on the books. There's actually a whole book on this called Taming Lust, which is basically entirely about zoophilia cases, court cases in the 1700s. I don't know if you happen to see that book. Oh, that particular one? I've I've read things about it, but I have a copy of it. So I've read some accounts on it, and it seems that the Christian church during the Enlightenment period, which were influencing the founding fathers at that time, they probably knew that the social issues of slavery couldn't be solved in their lifetime, so they left the foundation for a more enlightened era, right? Because that's why it's called the Enlightenment, and not necessarily a Christian era. A lot of Christians believe that America Mm -hmm. was founded on Christianity, when in reality, I believe most of them were agnostic or they were, what was it? Agnostic or they were deist, deism. Yeah, Yeah, they were deists. Yeah. So they knew in their time they wouldn't be able to solve these issues. But, you know, as we come further and we see more futures in science on animal cognition, we're beginning to realize that maybe animals can consent to certain things. And maybe that Zophilia, legally wise, that taboo was written because of the Christian influence in the legal system that the founding fathers couldn't get rid of at the time. They couldn't. But they wrote it in a way that it could eventually Mm be removed. That that time may be coming and eventually, you know, I don't have any problem with Christians starting their own communities or communes or doing their own independent thing, but using the arm of the Mm -hmm. law to persecute somebody who doesn't necessarily believe what you do, that's not fair. And even the Founding Fathers, who may have been Christians or deists or, or agnostics at the time, they would understand that hey, the freedom to worship involves more than just a Christian religion. That's why they wrote it in there. Mm -hmm. They didn't say the freedom to worship the Christian God. They said the freedom to worship God. I think there was one more thing I wanted to say. I think Jack said something earlier, how in the Protestant Reformation era, there was a lot of change in beliefs. But if you go back even further, it, it doesn't even go back to that. So if you go back to 300 AD, there was a Council of Nicene, it's called the Nicene Creed. Have you ever heard of that? The Nicene, yeah, it's the most common the, the, creed, yeah. or one of them okay. at least, yeah. Yes, but the Nicene Creed was again established by Constantine to settle the disputes between Christians because they were disrupting the Roman Empire at the time, right? And yes, we yes. know that Constantine had funny business with cows at the time too. Right. So the beliefs of Christianity before the Council of Nicene was way more diverse than it is now. Because you had the Gnostics, you had mm-hmm. the Trinitarians, you had yep. the Arians, like following Arius, not interesting. 
not not like Hitler, but he had the guy called Arius, no, right? No, no, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, not not like uh, Arian, but I'm talking Arius from no, 300, no, no, no. different guy. So yep, you had this diversity of beliefs, but what happened was the state, the Roman state, stamped out everything else. When Constantine said, "We're basically going to kill every other Christian who doesn't believe the Nicene Creed." Uh huh. So what happened was, is he killed off the Visigoths, he killed off mm-hmm. the Arius, he had Arius exiled, and mm-hmm. that's why that stamping out of this diversity of the Christian faith kind of disappeared, and it literally hasn't come back until well, the 1900s. The there were 1900s. like some slight resurgences throughout history. Like I'm thinking of the Cathar heresy back when essentially certain kinds of Gnostic beliefs made a comeback about a thousand years ago in regions of France and Italy, and those got squashed out pretty much too. But yes, for the most part, like uh there was an attempt to make one church with one belief structure in terms of Christianity, and anything else out the window, you will be executed or silenced in some other way to Uh just make sure that that doesn't get anywhere, because it's dangerous to the state. So in summary, before 300, before the Council of Nicaea, the Christian faith had many interpretations, and pretty much after that council occurred, under the Roman state and, and government, a lot of these other interpretations were stamped out, and for basically 2,000 years, that was the interpretations. And it wasn't until recently, in, in probably the 1900s, there was a great awakening in these alternative interpretations. And I believe that Christian faith is better when it's examined by itself, and that there's these other interpretations on the table and i believe using some of judaism's interpretations i believe there might even be a possible path to uh, mesh a zoophile's attractions but really yet yet maintain a christian traditional faith so huh. i'm just throwing All this right. interpretation out there and i believe that sure it's only uh, a good thing to have alternative interpretations on the table Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So what is it that makes you think that zoo sexuality is not only not a massive sin, but is to some extent a part of Christianity as one might understand it? Well, let's interpret it this way. We know that incest at one time was allowed because, quite frankly, there was only Adam and Eve. And there had to have been a period where there was incest to get enough family and paternal that by the time they got so big there was not really an issue and also we have to remember that in in the bible polygamy was also allowed for quite a while even though uh-huh. the lord himself didn't instate that it was a guy called lamech who instated polygamy he accepted hmm. that see what i'm saying so even though yeah. he didn't instate that rule he allowed it the god of the lord of the bible is not as iron as people think he is He's very understanding sure. mm-hmm. because Lamech, once again, he's the one who started polygamy. God never instated uh, it, but he said, okay, we're going to let this slide. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start on my little piece that I have been studying on for quite a while. I don't think you've even heard of this interpretation, right? Until recently. I'd heard of it, but I hadn't heard it explained in such detail. So yeah. Okay. Me neither. Yeah, Jack definitely Jack wouldn't have heard of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm just thinking. Um, you know? <laughs> let me go to first to say that if you're a Christian and you're a zoophile, listen to this. I know we all know how difficult it is to discover you're a zoophile, and I'm not going to be one to dissuade you from your Christian faith. And I know why you would like to keep it. It's a very wholesome, simple life, and of all the faiths that I studied, the Christians have the strongest endurance. 
the trials they've gone through through history just goes to show that they really do have the most endurance of any faith in my opinion so yeah what yeah. i'm going to do is i'm going to try to attempt to strengthen your faith and maybe bring some peace between you your zoophilia and god or maybe at least I'll get you to start researching and finding that peace or starting to look for it. Because we talked earlier, there's many interpretations of the Bible. And even in the early Christian days from the 70 CE forward to about 300, there was so many interpretations. So yeah. there's this interpretation that you may not even know about. So I'm going to share that with you. But to understand how this is going to be interpreted, let's kind of look at how Judaism views a particular verse in the Bible. So mm -hmm. I'm going to read Genesis 2.23, but I'm going to be quoting it from the Jewish Bible with Rabbi Rashi's commentary. Okay? Right. So In a translation, I assume. I don't think our listeners, at least many of them, yes. speak ancient Hebrew. But yeah. If you want to go and research this yourself, look up the Jewish Bible with Rashi's commentary so you can yeah. follow along. So in Genesis 2.23, in this Bible, it says, And man said, This time it is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called Isha, because this one was taken from Ish. So Isha is woman, and Ish is man. Mm -hmm. So under that verse, this is Rashi's commentary. It says, This teaches us that Adam came to all the animals and the beasts in search of a mate, but he was not satisfied until he found Eve. And then he quotes, that's the Jewish Talmud in Yevamal 63a. So, we take that commentary, now we go to the Talmud, and we're going to read Yevamal 63a. Now, that states this. What is meant by the scriptural text? This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. This teaches that Adam had intercourse with every beast and animal, but found no satisfaction until he cohabited with Eve. Now, isn't that interesting? I never thought about it that way. Yeah. So why would the Jews interpret it this way? You don't just come up with an interpretation like this out of nowhere. There has to be a reason they've stuck with this. Here's why they agree with that Talmud interpretation, because Rashi could have disagreed with the Talmud, but he in fact, he quoted it. So let's go see exactly why he did that. Now grab your King James Bible, right? You can grab a King James Bible and we're going to look at the King James Version of Genesis 2, 18 through 20. It says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was its name thereof. And Adam gave names mm -hmm. to all the cattle, to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helpmeet for him. So I'm going to emphasize this. In verse 18 and in verse 20, he was looking for a helpmeet. Yes. This is very important because mm. when we go to the Jewish translation, the Hebrew translation of that, the Jewish word for helpmeet is ezer kenegdo, which mm -hmm. literally means a help corresponding to him. Okay. That's correct. That's established, right? A help corresponding to him. That's what a help right. is. So the Lord brought all the beasts before Adam to find a help corresponding to him. Now here mm -hmm. is the $500,000 question, right? The meat of the question is what kind of kind of help was the Lord looking for Adam? And I'll emphasize huh. this again. What kind of Ezer 
Kenegdo did the Lord intend. So right. we go a few verses forward, right? And you read Genesis two mm-hmm. twenty four, and it says, "Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife." Ah, okay. oh, one flesh. Okay, so okay. Now this verse above. Do you think Adam wrote this verse in Genesis two twenty four? Traditionally, uh, they say Noah did, but in any case, like no, it's very important. Becoming it's one very flesh. Important. It's right. very important who wrote this verse. Did Adam have a father or a mother? No. No, no he did no. not. So who penned Genesis 2.24? Who wrote Who wrote Genesis? Moses wrote Genesis. Moses wrote the first five books. of Ostensibly the sources from which it came? I don't know. Yeah, so you could say, okay, he was inspired of God. But obviously, okay. Adam didn't say those words. Moses put those words in there. Now, right. Moses is the one who says... They shall be one flesh. The greatest prophet from the Lord interpreted what his Ezer Kenegdo was. So Moses in Genesis 2.24 admits that the help me Ezer Kenegdo of Genesis 2.18-20 was for a physical sexual compatibility. Oh, I see. That's what that I is. Mm. That's one flesh. That's a physical yeah, that's... sexual compatibility. It definitely yeah. is. Yeah. So Moses interpreted that previous verse for us. Now, that means the Lord brought Adam the beast of the field to become one flesh. So to see more clearly if they were physically, sexually compatible. I see. Okay. Hmm. So auditions for this kind of help meet <laughs> kind of reminds me of Enkidu, the Gilgamesh <laughs> figure you had described earlier, where essentially this being tries out all the animals and then eventually is not satisfied until trying things with a woman. But at the same time, who's to say that another man wouldn't be satisfied? And many are. Or clearly they must have been had there been these things. Here's the point is that this is a valid interpretation. This is why the Jews and Judaism sticks with that old Talmudic interpretation because as the Archinecdote can only be read physically it can't be read in any other way it, it's a physical compatibility so mm-hmm. i'm gonna try to emphasize this one more time for everybody listening that adam looked for sexual compatibility his help me as there can go among the animals he declared that he didn't find any and eve was made eve was his as there can go his sexual compatibility was declared by moses as they shall be one flesh now, mm-hmm. I'm going to bring up one more little tidbit about this account, because it's only a few verses. So ponder on this if you're a Christian zoophile as well. Consider mm-hmm. that the tree of knowledge had already been created by this time, before Adam's bestiality occurred, which means he had the framework right. to rebel, and thus had free will in this whole manner. Have you ever pondered wait a minute, wait, wait, the wait. question? Hold on, I'm confused about... Like, that is... I thought that the standard interpretation was free will wasn't really a thing until the fruit of knowledge of good and evil was eaten. And no. the tree the, existed, the, the, yes, the tree, but had they... Let me, let me explain why Adam had free will during this whole period, okay? The okay. Lord God said, before this happened, before Adam and the animals, God put him in the Garden of yeah. Eden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil was already there. And he said, do not eat from this tree, or you will surely die from it which means he gave Adam the free will to eat from it and rebel or not to. 
So that is a free will choice. That is his choice to rebel against God. He thus had the choice and free will to do so. Otherwise, that makes no sense. Mm -hmm. But that's a whole nother Calvinist interpretation that I'm not going to get involved with. Yeah. But I will say that I strongly believe he had free will because the mere fact that the tree of knowledge was there and he could have eaten from it at any time, he probably had it. Okay. But consider this. Consider this if you're a zoophile Christian. I want you to ponder, what if Adam did say his animals were his help meat? Hmm. What if Adam did choose the beasts of the field? It wouldn't have been a sin at that time. Sin didn't exist. No. So don't you feel you should have, like, the same choice? Yeah, especially if Adam is the uh, father of all of us that were much Mm -hmm. like him. So that really cancels out the fact that anything like that would would have been a sin. But then, interestingly, the, I, I just can't get over, like, then why does it say the law of Moses of being a sin, then, if it wasn't a sin oh. back in the Garden of Eden? Let me explain a little bit further, too. Remember, there was no written law before Moses. So, from Abraham's time, to Jacob's time, to Joseph's time, all those years, from Noah's time, there was no written law. Remember, incest was still allowed, even past Moses' time up to Jesus' time. But... Sure. The issue is the Levitical law appliable to Christians, right? I've heard debates on, okay, well, it's appliable, it isn't appliable. But what I want to get to is this point, is that the Lord didn't see bestiality as a sin in Adam's case in that time. Nor was right. it, like I said, it wasn't prohibited until Moses' time. But then you think about why was it restricted under Moses' time? Was it because mm-hmm. they just wanted to separate themselves? Like the worship of other nations, like we discussed? Because all the other mm-hmm. pagan nations yeah. had it involved with worship. Maybe that was the reason. Yeah. Just solely because of that. Not because he hated bestiality. He had Adam right. partake of that. But because right. it had something to do with other gods and not the Lord. I or oh, it's, okay. it's, it, could, it could have also been an issue with the nation growing as a population. And why polygamy was allowed. Because they could have more children at the time. And they could yeah. do better in, in uh, defending the nation. So it may have been those two things. It may not have necessarily have been that the Lord actually hated the sexual act. It may have just been something for a nation. Yeah. I would be remiss if at this point I didn't mention Islamic interpretations of this as well, because a lot of similar problems have shown up in different aspects of how Islamic people view, well, sexuality in general. I guess sex with animals in particular, though it doesn't come up with as much regularity. But essentially, you have a similar situation in the modern day where some of these prohibitions against, well, zoosexuality, but also homosexuality, transgenderism, all that, a lot of those exist for political reasons or to differentiate themselves from those that they view as heathens, as wrong. Right. So, for example, there are verses in the Quran in which praise is given to particular they called them literally men who do not like women there's another term called mukhanath which means men who are like women which can mean transgender or homosexual it is difficult to tell exactly what that is now especially since it wasn't an identity at the time but that sort of thing was tolerated by the prophet muhammad in a couple of different stories in the quran and also in certain hadiths so to say that Islam is entirely anti-gay, anti-trans, anti-sex positivity in general is not actually true. It's mainly just a loud and harsh minority imposing that view on a lot of other people. 
Yeah. That is how you would see it in ancient contexts. And then in more modern ones, in the context of, let's say, the past 50 to 75 years, what do you see in the Muslim world? You see a lot of Western intervention in nations that they founded or wished to have founded. And you see, as a result, quite a few reactionary pushbacks against that sort of thing, against basically what the West was doing to them, because they view it as sacrilegious, as a violation of their rights as people. And as a result, they tend to view those people who are, in their view, invading them as oppressors, as evil to some extent. And then what do they see when they see Western media and Western values? They see this form of sexual liberation, this form of diversity and inclusiveness, and just generally being very immodest. And they say to themselves, no, that's terrible because these people are terrible. We need to be the opposite of that, which means a lot of restrictions heavily enforced on alcohol, on what women can and can't do, on sexuality in general. And you see the same kinds of prohibitions, not necessarily because there is such massive support for it in their holy texts. There isn't. I mean, you can pick and choose verses, but you can pick and choose verses the other way, too. It has more to do with seeing another group that they dislike intensely and doing as much as possible to make themselves unlike that other group. Right. Tribalism at its core. The religions and faiths themselves, they're much, much more flexible in their interpretations of things. There's no real reason to persecute yeah. two files in the name of faith because, quite frankly, all the faiths are zooming away. Because to know God, you have to know his creation, and the most intimate mm-hmm. way to know it is through zoo sex. And we've already covered a lot of that, but there was one little last closing thing on the Christian faith, at least, sure. using the Judea's interpretation. Because while it's great and all to know this knowledge, mm-hmm. how do you actually apply this in your life, right? If you're a zoophile Christian, like how do you actually apply all this knowledge? So where does this leave us? Where right. is the practical use? Is this for the morality of zoophile Christians? Well, I myself cannot fully answer that for you because you're going to have to come to terms with this, prayer, mm-hmm. and, and your own faith. We only have one example in the Bible for zoo Christians, and, that, and that's for Adam. So what did Adam do during those short verses? So... One, we know that Adam laid with many animals, most likely the domesticated species, but he married none of them. Second, we know he didn't have any children at this time. Until the fall of mankind, he officially had children, at least in the Bible's record. And Adam's purpose at that yeah. time was to tend to the garden and tend to the animals. So, all right. in my loose interpretation, a zoophile Christian is not obligated to marry any animals. He may have as many animal partners as he wishes, so long as he's able to tend them like Adam was tending them. And he remained childless Mm -hmm. as a eunuch in the Lord's service and aiding in the Christian congregation as he's able. Because if you look at the eunuch queer interpretation of how Jesus mentioned the word eunuch, that's basically it was men who didn't Mm -hmm. want to marry. And I feel that Mm -hmm. using that same queer interpretation for Zufiles is applicable because more than likely they're not going to be bearing any children, but they could still serve the Lord as best as they can in their congregations. But here's the thing. There's a scripture in Revelation that says that those who were virgins in heaven actually have a higher name than most other Christians because they had no children on there. So keep that in mind. Just because you don't have children and you may not have a family, God still has value in you. Absolutely. Really, and until you have come along, Mark, and, and have told me that, I had no idea that that was even a thing. I, I never seen any sermons on it or anything, so 
The quote is from Revelation 14.4 in the King James. It says, These are they which did not defiled with women, for they were virgins. These were the fall of the Lamb, whereas he go, and they were redeemed among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. So that usually those who are, are not defiled with women and are virgins with women are, are eunuchs and zoophiles most of the time. So, in other words, uh -huh. they're saying that because you gave up your chance to have a, ch a child, a family, and heritage, you're having this lineage, right? You gave that up for God, so you have given a bigger sacrifice. So you are the first fruits mm -hmm. of God in heaven. That's what that's saying. Oh, I see. Well, thank you for enlightening us with a lot of good history. Um, Jack, you have anything else to say? Final thoughts? Yeah, um, I kind of gave a, a rundown of some of the misconceptions that people have and so how it's just led to some great struggles that people like us have had to experience because of it. And I just want to say that, that God's love is indiscriminate. If anything, the Bible commands mm -hmm. that people should love God and, and love their fellow man. And that, that above mm -hmm. all other law is most important. And Jesus taught that more than anything. My Christian faith was all gloom and doom. I've had some really good encounters with uh, some people. Some people have really helped me. I've reached out to some that have been attacked by some other people, and they have been very good to me. So I want to thank you to those people out there for doing that. If you're gay or any other person that might be uh, struggling accepting yourself, just, just mm -hmm. keep in mind that it's those who, who want, who care about pleasing God and doing the right thing. Those are the people that God has called to be his and to do his work through. And I feel that God has done the same in my life, and that's why I'm here today. I think the last thing I wanted to say is that religion and zoophilia have been closer friends and enemies through history. And I really do feel sad that when zoophiles lose their faith because of persecution of religions, but they don't realize that they were the priesthoods of old, that they were the enlightened ones, mm -hmm. and they were the ones who explained the gods of the Egyptians and the gods of the Mesopotamians and Babylon. And they were the priesthood of Greece and Rome. And they're still here, and Zufiles are still a priestly class to me, they, because they get to know God in a way that most can't. And we have to remember that a lot of the religious text was written for the heteronormative family, which is 96-97% of the population. So of course the majority of the text is not going to mention Zufiles, or it's not going to mention queer relationships. But it does give enough grasp that we are able to find our place in these different faiths. And I know this episode's going to be controversial, so I made mm -hmm. a Proton Mail. And if you want to send me an email, you can go ahead and send me an email at libbypaw at protonmail.com. So that is L-I-B-B-Y paw at protonmail.com. So if you have any questions okay. or if you're a Zufile struggling with faith, I'm, I will try to strengthen it as best as I can and give what knowledge that I can. All right. Thank yeah. you. If you have any other questions about many different faiths, there is a just wealth of information that Mark here has. You can email him at libbypaw at protonmail.com. So thank you very much, both of you, for being here. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. All right. We'll be back with more Zooier Than Thou. Welcome back to another season of Ask Zooey. I'm your host who can boast the most from coast to coast, Zooey. And I'm the most wanted rat in cyberspace, Toggle. The ratings have been so good that we got signed on for a third season. We only have you to thank, dear audience. Yes, indeed. Without you, we'd have neither content nor canned laughter. 
We are an audience-driven medium, and we're unique in drawing a drastically underserved four-legger demographic. As such, we now accept letters sent in through Stable Mail. We've partnered with a nationwide network of Stable Boys in order to make our program more accessible to more of you than ever before. Don't hesitate to give us the juicy barnyard gossip and tell us your tales of forbidden farmhouse trysts. Rest assured, your mail is completely confidential, so that local stable hottie won't know that you've got your eye on him until you're good and ready. And with that, let's head back into the city with this letter from Longing in Longview. Longing writes, Dear Zooey, I'll cut right to the chase. I'm in heat, big time. And there's only one guy who bounces my ball. He's got two legs and always scratches behind my ears in just the right place. And I just know if I can get him to mount me, he'll make my legs shake. So far, my advances have been turned down. I think he might be intimidated by my raw sex appeal. What kind of treats can I give my human that will get him in the mood and convince him to consummate our love the way I so desperately desire? Ah, a reluctant Romeo and a damsel in distress. Indeed. You know, Longing, this can be tricky territory. It's true that two-leggers often offer an exchange of gifts in return for sex. Sometimes they wine and dine. Other times they might give expensive presents. And still other times, they might agree to exchange mutual favors that they typically don't find enjoyable, but which they know will make their partner swoon with delight. We don't typically think that there's anything wrong with that. Compromise and cooperation are important parts of a romantic relationship. But where it gets tricky is when sex is expected in return for a favor. It can put someone in an uncomfortable position where they feel obligated to do something they don't want to do. And you never want that. Maybe you've been there yourself, Lawning. I know I have. For instance, sometimes a two-legged woman is expected to have sex with a suitor after a particularly expensive night out. And many times this isn't explicitly agreed upon, but assumed to be understood. It puts her in a very tough place, and it creates resentment in the relationship if she's not actually interested. In extreme circumstances, this dynamic can become abusive. If you think about it, wouldn't it be better to know that the love you're consummating is genuinely reciprocated, rather than an obligatory action in exchange for a treat? Shouldn't the act of lovemaking with a partner be its own reward, rather than one part of a transaction? I don't know about you, but I certainly don't want that ambiguity keeping me up at night. Being in heat can make you really desperate for a deep dicking. But sex with an unwilling partner, or one who feels obligated to return a favor, doesn't come with a satisfying afterglow. When you're longing for love, it may feel like you need to get laid no matter what. But eventually, when you're not horny anymore, the pleasure of sex potentially gives way to regret, and that's not something you want in your life. The best course of action is to make your longing explicitly known. Humans can be really daft, so you can't beat around the bush. Give them the option of accepting your proposal, but give him the space to decline, and accept that decision, no matter how badly you long for him longing. When and if the time is right for him, I'm sure he'll let you know. Lovemaking is a mutually rewarding activity when practiced with the other person's needs in mind. Think about what your partner longs for in your relationship. You'll rarely go wrong with that as your guide. And that's our show, dear listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in. We look forward to answering all your Zooey-related questions next episode. Keep those submissions coming. We'll see you next time on Ask Zooey. Same zoo time, same zoo channel. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Zooier Than Thou. Join us for the next episode where we talk about community and accountability. Uh, sounds very grown up and responsible. 
I hope. So stay tuned. You can subscribe to the podcast via our Zooey RSS feed. Just point your favorite podcast client at rss.zoo.wtf and off you go. You can also check out our extensive bonus content at bonus.zoo.wtf. If you want to show your support financially, head on over to donate.zoo.wtf. We can be found all over the web where podcasts are distributed. Try searching for Zooier Than Thou in your favorite podcast directory. Our podcast website is still zoo.wtf. That's WTF as in wisdom to follow. Our Twitter is at Zooier Than Thou, and you can follow Zooey's naughty advice at AskZooey. Follow Lovecat at Meow of Love, and follow me at Dearest Doggy. A reminder that we have a form that enables anonymous submissions to the podcast on our website, zoo.wtf. You can send us a treatise on finding the divine in a mare's behind, ask Zooey about her body given for you, or tell us that God hates us, alongside everyone else you don't like. You can also just simply email us at mail.zoo.wtf. Send us things to read. It gets boring here without it. Get your friends into the Zooey spirit by sharing this podcast with them. All non-humans who contributed to this podcast were gods reaching out to humans and showing us that they love us just the way we are. And as a zoo back in the day said, I just want the same choice of mate Adam was given. I'm Conophile, a square with a horn who makes you wish you weren't born. And I'm Lovecat, picking up on that feline beat. And you've almost finished listening to Zooier Than Thou. Stay defiant, fellow zoos. We'll see you next time you feel like howling at the moon. Woofer was back there woofing in her sleep. <laughs> <laughs>